Amen. It's a privilege to be back with you this morning. <clears throat> uh, this is the first uh, Sunday of December. And uh, it's fitting in God's providence that as we are going through the book of Matthew, uh, that the passage we fall upon this morning is uh, the Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. So looking forward to looking at this text with you. But before we do, let's pray together one more time. Father, we count it a privilege to hear from you this morning, and that is the desire of our hearts, Father, to hear from you. So, Lord, I just ask now that you would just uh, put me aside, Lord, and that you would speak plainly, clearly, God, to our hearts, to our consciences, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to be the people, God, that you desire us to be, a, a shining city on a hill, God, a lamp that cannot be hidden, a people who burn, Lord, with zeal for the glory of the King, and a people, God, who are amazed again, Lord, this Christmas, that God came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray that his name would be exalted this day and every day in us forever. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Um, calling this sermon, Glory to the Newborn King. Glory to the Newborn King. Um, it, this, that's a part of a very famous Christmas song, as you are aware, and also a very fitting title to uh, this message. We desire to give him glory, the newborn king, and he is a king, and I believe that's Matthew's great burden. And uh, I love Christmas. I love the incarnation. I love the, the miracle of the Word made flesh. There's a wonderful illustration of this um, from a, a woman uh, uh, named Dorothy Sayers. Maybe you've heard of her, maybe you haven't. She was a British mystery novelist, uh, and who uh, Dorothy also happened to be one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford. And she wrote a series of books uh, around a detective named Peter Whimsey. And what is fascinating about this uh, mystery series from Dorothy Sayers is that about halfway through the series, um, a new character gets introduced into her and to this uh, mystery uh, series uh, around the, the character Peter Whimsey. And this new, this new character in the plot line, her name is Harriet Vane. And in the, uh, in the mystery novels, this character, Harriet, uh, was, a, was a mystery writer, a writer of mystery novels. And she also happened to be one of the first female graduates of Oxford University. Uh, and she, uh, this, and this is the new character within her uh, her mystery series. And as the series progresses, Harriet and Peter fall in love, and it is their relationship that eventually delivers Peter from his troubled life. Now, it doesn't take uh, a lot to see uh, what had happened here. Dorothy loved the world 
that she created uh, and the characters in it. So much so, in fact, that she decided to write herself into the story to to be a, a deliverer, if you will, of those within it. And what we see here is that's just a tiny, tiny, tiny parable of what God, the Lord, the King of the cosmos, has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. God created the world, and we made a royal mess of it. So God, looking down in mercy upon his people, knew and decided that the only way that this problem could be fixed is if he wrote himself into the story. And that's what he did in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we celebrate 2,000 years ago after the fact when when the greatest thing that ever happened in human history occurred, when God became a man, when the Word became flesh, when completely contradictory and different than any other religion in existence, God did not count himself too high, but made himself low to deliver his creatures from their sins. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we talk about glory to the newborn king from Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. And now if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to divorce her, uh, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The word of God. You may be seated. So this morning, what I want to do is I have have the sermon in a sentence. And I just want to walk through it with you this morning. And the sermon in the sentence is this. Jesus is the Son of God, come to save And dwell with us. Jesus is the Son of God, come to save and dwell with us. So, number one, we're going to focus on the first part. Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God, come to save and dwell with us. So, 
first what I want to do is I want us to think briefly about what Matthew has led us through thus far. He begins the book, as we talked about, by highlighting specifically that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 1 there of chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's saying that David is the promised, uh, that Jesus is the promised one. He is the anointed one, the one anointed by God for a specific mission, the ultimate mission. Chosen and anointed by God to fulfill this mission of kingship. Specifically, Jesus is the fulfillment of both the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenants. He is the promised heir of David who will rule God's people forever as the cosmic king. He is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the blessing of the nations. He is the one who came from Abraham such that through Abraham all the nations of the world will be blessed, not just the Jews. Every knee will bow to King Jesus, and every person who comes to Jesus through repentance and faith can be forgiven of their sins and have access to the eternal kingdom of the Son. And Matthew goes on to prove this with a genealogy. And we talked about that at length last time. Uh, Jews, uh, they highly valued genealogy, and uh, it would have been important to them, of course, to uh, see that Jesus was uh, descended of David and therefore was a rightful heir to the Davidic throne. But as we talked about before, Jesus, uh, Matthew was also doing much more than that. Through the genealogy, uh, Jesus, uh, Matthew, was also reviewing the history of Israel, showing that the time had drawn near for the restoration of Israel from the exile through the Davidic king as was promised in the prophets. And so, and so the 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 genealogy also kind of gave an outline of the tragic history of Israel and how all they did time after time is rebel against the God who saved them and they broke the covenant that God made with them and so God kicked them out of the land that God promised them on the basis of the covenant. And then the, the prophets prophesied of a day in which the restoration of Israel would take place through the heir of David, through the descendant of David who would be the king and who would restore Israel. But but even in, even in their return from the exile, that didn't happen in the, in the daily reading. Maybe you're going through the daily, uh, the daily reading in the back of our bulletins through, through this year. It's almost over. It, even, in, even in the book of uh, reading in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah talks about how that even in their return from the exile, they're still slaves in their own land. They're still slaves in the land of promise because they're under the yoke of Babylon. And so even in the return from exile, there's, there's still no real deliverance. There's no real kingdom of God. And so the prophets looked to a coming king who would rule over God's people forever. And so all this leads up to this genealogy that leads up to the birth of this child who is, of course, no ordinary child. And so... Um, it points to how unique and spectacular and significant this singular man is. That, that, as, that through this whole genealogy, he comes at the very end, if you will, the climax of the history of Israel. And as we know, the climax of the history of the world. And it's no surprise then that the birth itself is unique. It's incredible. It's unique. There's nothing like it. 
And that's why we especially want to see what Matthew wants to tell us here, especially how Jesus is, was conceived of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. And so now let's, let's think of the story a little bit. Mary was a young woman. She's probably in her teens. And she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And this is significant uh, because betrothal in that day or engagement was it itself a, a covenantal arrangement. To, to become betrothed was uh, more or less a legally binding and formal agreement to marriage such that to break a betrothal required a divorce. Okay, that, that, that's, that's just how it worked. And so you can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine the difficulty of this situation. Because here you have it. You have a young girl who's legally bound to be married to this man. She is a virgin. And then all of a sudden, she's pregnant. And then you go and you say, Mary, what happened? And she said, God did it. We like to act all righteous, but let me ask you something. Would you believe her? Would you believe her? Matthew tends to focus on Joseph more, but if we go over to Luke, Luke focuses more on Mary. And in Luke, what we see that Mary was a, a young woman of great faith. And I think it's worth reflecting on what great faith that this young woman had. Because she wasn't ignorant. She was young, but she wasn't ignorant. When the, when the angel came to her and told her what was going to happen to her, she knew what it was going to cost her. She knew the looks that she was going to get from people. She knew what the whole town, this, this, this whole small town would be thinking about her. And yet knowing the scorn and suspicion that would surround her whole pregnancy, she tells that angel, let it be to me according to your word. In other words, God, I don't care what it costs me. If this is your will for me, I'll do it. I want it to be to me according to your word. Tell me, Christian, would you endure the scorn of the world and the ruining of your reputation for Jesus Christ? Are you, are you willing to be misunderstood for the sake of Christ? Are you willing for people to stand out there not fully knowing and, probably, and not even really able to comprehend your beliefs and what you understand about Christ such that they're going to malign you and speak evil about you. And yet you're not going to get, you're not going to get angry or bitter about it, but you're going to say, let it be to me, God, according to your word. Are you going to patiently endure being despised by the world for the sake of Christ? It's a small thing. It's a small thing. And here we have a teenage girl and she says, I'll do it. If you're, not, if you're not ready for that, if you, can't, you, if you can't endure a little scorn for the name of Jesus, let me tell you something, you're not going to make it because it's coming.
a young woman of great faith. But then Matthew goes on and he says that Joseph, being a just man, determined to, vor- to divorce her quietly. And um, as I was studying this, it kind of came to my attention and it, it, it kind of makes sense uh, that we... As, as, I re- as I read about it, that we may be, mis- the typical way we kind of think about this may be a little bit of a misunderstanding. It says here that Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And when we read of Joseph being a just man, we tend to read that in view of what it says right after that, unwilling to put her to shame. And therefore, we read just to mean something like compassionate or merciful. Well, since Joseph was a merciful man or or compassionate man, he was unwilling to put her to shame. But see, the thing is, is that just in in the language of the New Testament, the word just or or righteous, you could translate it righteous, typically doesn't doesn't isn't used that way. It typically means uh, maintaining a just character or turning away from evil or doing what is right. And from the context of it, it's just, it's not clear because it's, it's, it's very likely for, for Joseph that being, that willing, a willingness to continue to marry a girl who from all, from, from what everyone else can tell, has had sexual relations outside of marriage, it, it's, it, if in, it would likely be on Joseph's part a tacit admission, <laughs> That the child was his. Or if not that, at the very least, it would, it would be this. It would speak to Joseph's character of his willingness to marry a licentious woman. And so rather, probably what it means by just is that it's Joseph's righteous character that actually was leading him that, to say that, well, I can't marry her. I can't marry her now. So he resolves to divorce her, but at the same time, he is compassionate. So it doesn't, his, his righteous character doesn't negate his compassion. So his, the, his, the just character of his heart says, I can't marry her. But the compassionate character of his heart says, I'm going to do it quietly for her sake. And so Joseph's righteous character and his mercy are together put in tension, which is a tension that we often find ourselves in in this day and age. He's, he, divor- he's, he commits to divorce her, but he doesn't want to publicly put her to shame. But all of that in the end comes to naught because Joseph has his own visit from an angel. And the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so now Joseph... Now Joseph has his own act of faith, his own act of faith to step into in taking this, this, uh, this young girl pregnant with a child that's not his, but he's going to take that child as his own, as the very son of God. And the, and the key thing here that Matthew really focuses on is how the birth of Jesus, the conception of Jesus is through the Holy Spirit. And so we really have to reflect on this. We even, look, we even look, talked about it in the genealogy prior to this. The Bible is replete with miraculous births. And these births are saying something. They're saying that God is in it. 
that God is working through these births to fulfill a plan to bring forth an offspring of promise to deliver the world. And that thread runs through the entire Bible. But of course, we can't miss the fact that even in light of all the other miraculous births, there's nothing like this birth. Because there was not even the human agency of a father involved. Jesus Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit. No other human being in existence has ever come into existence this way. God is saying that this singular man is unique among all men. That is why... That is why a person like Jesus Christ can say something so astounding like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. That is an incredibly arrogant claim unless you are genuinely a man like no other man. Unless you are genuinely in a class of your own, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit, truly man, yet truly God. And of course, the Old Testament, there were pointers to this, although it was still wasn't clear exactly how incredible it would be. Even in the Davidic covenant, when God promised David an offspring to reign on his throne in 2 Samuel seven fourteen, God told David, said, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me. A son. But of course, David probably thought, well, you know, he'll be like a father to him, not his actual father. But God has a way of upturning human expectations. And so God, in the fullness of time, the Bible says, at the perfect, precise time in history, that time that the the apostle Peter says in which angels long to look, the time in which all of human history was building up to this climactic moment when God would become a man, when eternity would enter into time in the person of Jesus Christ, who this, a, a person who is both son of man and son of God. And so we have to, we just... It's just so easy to become so familiar with these things that we just miss the weight of what Matthew is trying to say. Imagine that you're a first century Jew and you come across this scroll that was written by this fellow named Matthew and you decide to read it. And you read that that in your lifetime, say 30 years ago, you're, you're reading this scroll and in your lifetime you read about a man who you had heard of from your parents, who was born of a virgin, who lived an astonishing life, who was crucified by the Romans, but then shortly after that, his followers started proclaiming to all people right there in Jerusalem that he had come back to life, that he is alive to this very day, and that if you turn from your sins, and if you follow him as the king, as the Christ, and the Messiah, that you too will have a place in the kingdom of God. Imagine reading these words for the first time. Your mind would be blown. 
for Christ has come. God has kept his promise. Jesus is the Messiah. Glory to the newborn king. And what does this mean for us? What well, means everything? <clears throat> it means God has kept his promise. It means God is working through history within, within history and within our lives to, to work things, to restore things, to renew things back to the way it was meant to be. This isn't some kind of deism. You know, deism was popular back in the day, and a, and a lot of people still kind of embrace that. They say, well, if there is a God, then at least, then, well, he's far off and he has nothing to do with us. But the incarnation speaks otherwise. God is not far off. He cares so much about it that he entered into this world himself to deal with your problems, to deal with our problems. Jesus is the son of God. Come to save and dwell with us. So number one, Jesus is the son of God. Number two, Jesus is the son of God. Come to save. Come to save. It says there, they tell, uh, the, the angel tells Joseph, he says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save their people from their sins. The name Jesus is a transliteration from the Hebrew name Yeshua or, or Joshua. And the name means Yahweh saves or, or, or the Lord saves. And we, just have, we have to think about that because the name means the Lord saves. And yet it says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So we have to ask, is it Jesus saving or is it the Lord saving? And of course, we know the answer to that. It's both. It's Jesus saving and it is the Lord saving because Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. God, the Son, made flesh. Jesus is God come to save his people. And this is hugely important to save them from what? The answer is sin. We can't miss this. This is the purpose statement over Jesus' life. Jesus came. The angel told Joseph, Jesus came. You will name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Your greatest problem is your sin. The greatest threat to your existence is your sin. The greatest thing that you'll ever face in this life is your sin. And this is so, this is so important in a day like today in modern America where people just, they don't like, they don't, they don't want to believe in sin anymore. If, 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 if you can get somebody to admit they're a sinner, what they're really thinking is, well, yeah, but I'm not as bad as that person over there. They need saving from their sin, but not me. I'm not really that bad. That's a, that's, what is that? That is sin. It's sinful pride, thinking that, that, that we'll get a pass while everyone else needs saving. And many times, many times in this, many times in this world, people, the, the average person today, they don't want saving from their sins. They want saving from their circumstances. Whether or not their circumstances, in many, oft, many times our circumstances, the reason we're in the circumstances is because of our sin. And yet we want saving not from our sins, but from our circumstances. But right here in this verse, it says that Jesus came to save us from what? From our sins. That's what we need saving for. 
The greatest, one of the greatest geniuses of the devil has been to blind our eyes to that fact that our greatest problem is not out there, but our greatest problem is in here. And we just, we live in a world that's just prone to just point the finger at everyone else. And I don't, I don't negate the real pain and the great, the great hardship that people face because of other people sinning against them. I don't negate that in the least. But what I'm saying is this, is that at the end of the day, when you stand before Christ, you won't have to account for their sin. They'll have to do that. But guess what? You will have to account for yours. So at the end of the day, yes, other people sinning against you can cause you great pain and hurt. But I'm talking, I'm trying to help you. They'll have to deal with themselves, but I'm trying to help you. What about you when you stand in your sin before God? Because let me tell you something. When you look in Jesus' eyes, his eyes flames of fire and his feet burnish bronze, and you think he's going to give you a pass when you said, yeah, I know I did that, but they did this to me. He's just going to look you straight in the eye and you'll know. You'll know. That you have no excuse for your sin. That's our greatest problem, is our own personal sin. We were made by God for God, therefore we owe all to God. And he is the creator, ruler, sustainer of all things. None like him. Infinitely worthy and deserving of perfect love and obedience which we owe to God, but would not, could not give him. And regardless, I I had a conversation recently about this because people just don't, we don't think sin's a big deal because we don't think God's a big deal. Let me tell you something. You go into the ancient medieval times and you go up to one of the ancient kings of Europe and you walk up to the throne and you walk up to the man sitting on the throne and you slap him in the face and you tell me what's going to happen to you. You're going to tell me you can't disrespect a human king and live, but you want to disrespect the God Almighty of the universe and think you're going to be okay? Every time we sin is a cosmic slap in the face of the cosmic king. And we will be called to account for it. And who shall stand before the wrath of God? We are our own greatest problem. That's why a child was born who was named Jesus. Why? So he could save his people from their sins. That's why. Because you couldn't save yourself from your sins. So God came in the person of Jesus to save his people from our sins. And, and because of that, it, because you don't deserve it and can never earn it, you can only, that means it's a gift that God is giving that you just have to receive it. By faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to deliver us from our sins. So if you want to be forgiven of your sins today, it's a free gift of God that you just receive. You call out in your heart. You call on Jesus as Lord. You call on him and say, Jesus, I believe that you are the king. I believe that you were born of a virgin. I believe that you died and that you rose again. I believe that you're coming back. And when you come back, I want to be found as belonging to you. And if you will come to him humbly and embrace him and say, forgive me, and you turn from your sins and say, now you're the boss, you're the king of me, and you embrace him as your Lord and master, he will by no means turn you away. 
You can be saved today from your sins. From your sin. Jesus is the Son of God come to save and finally to dwell with us. Son of God come to save and dwell with us. Jesus is God come to dwell with us. Verse 23, Matthew quotes the book of Isaiah. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the coming of Christ. 700 years of a virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son. And we are warranted, I believe, to understand that, to understand and see lots of people, you know, they, they negate that. They don't want to believe that Christ is God. But I, the Bible is quite clear on that. And Jesus, and even, in, even from this quote that Matthew makes, Isaiah chapter 7, there's good reason to believe that, that chapter 7 through chapter 9 in the book of Isaiah comprise a unit. And in, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, it's the prophecy of a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. But then when it gets over to chapter 9, it picks back up talking about a child. You remember what it says? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is amazing. Because nowhere in, in all of the Bible or in the history of the world has such titles be, been attributed to a human being. Mighty, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And there he is, a baby. That's what Christmas is about. The greatest being who ever lived God, the Son, wrapping himself in human flesh and being born as a baby. Growing up into the only sinless person that ever lived so that he could give his sinless life for sinful ones. To save his people from their sin. And that's why the Apostle John said the same thing. In John chapter 1, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. At the end of Jesus' life, one of his disciples said, Jesus, show us the Father, and it is enough. And Jesus said, have you been with me all this time, and do you not know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Did you know that one day everyone seated in this room will see the man Jesus Christ with our own two eyes? It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And when we behold Jesus with physical eyes descending from heaven, we will be looking at God in flesh. God revealed to us in the man, Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is about. And so this Christmas, I hope we remember that Christmas is about so much more than an overweight fellow with rosy cheeks. So much more. It's about the king who has come, God in flesh, to save us from our sins. So as we close this morning, the invitation stands. Christ came to save us, to save you from your sins, if you will turn from your sins and believe in him. And you can belong to this newborn king and have the sure hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you.